0: We are in Mark chapter 7 this morning and um, want to start there with uh, verse 1 of Mark 7. A uh, couple weeks ago, we referenced a parallel passage to this passage in Matthew chapter 15. And, um, and so we're going to dig right in. And I have to say, um, we're going to go to school this morning for a little while, okay? And so I need, I need for us to hang together and hang in because we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about the background of what makes this passage um, so important and so meaningful for us today. Let's read together. Matthew, or excuse me, Luke, Mark. You do that with your kids? Yeah. Mark chapter 7. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him, that is Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many, many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers And copper pots. Get the idea why we need some background here? We're gonna dig in in a little bit. Verse five And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do you, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly. Did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. If you'll note back in chapter 6, verse 52, just across the page, Jesus, um, our Mark notes that, that uh, the disciples had a similar issue, if you would. Look at verse 52. For they, the disciples, had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now it's important for us to understand that this hardening of their hearts is unique and different than what we see here in chapter 7. Because the the disciples did not have a sense of, of willfulness or malice involved in the what Mark describes as the hardening of their hearts. But when Jesus confronts the Pharisees here in in chapter 7 and the scribes, there is is a diagnosis of a deeper spiritual disease. And Jesus calls it right out. It's hypocrisy. Now, this hypocrisy is, is... it's important for us to understand this. This is not, this is not simply uh, someone uh, having been discovered that their, their life doesn't match up. Their walk and their talk don't match up. Some of us have been confronted with that. Some people have said, wait a second. You say that you believe this, but that doesn't look like that in how you walk. And, or in what you're doing right now. And what happens with us when we, we have that kind of confrontation? Most of us say, oh, I didn't realize that. Thank you for pointing that out to me. I need to change that. But the, the situation here with these Pharisees and scribes is something very different. Rather, it's intentional. It's a willful action on their part to appear to be keeping the letter of the law while willfully transgressing the law's intent. Supposing that because it looks good on the outside, they are justified. And they defend themselves in light of that. Look at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Mark points out they gathered around him. In fact, it's unique here in this passage. It's not recorded thus in Matthew 15. I think perhaps the reason for that is um, Mark, the the gospel of Mark was likely um, Actually, the testimony of the Apostle Peter, Mark transcribing what the Apostle Peter shared with him, because Mark was a disciple of Peter's, and many scholars believe that's what's going on here in the gospel. And Peter had quite a bit of time to reflect on what happened with the religious leaders and Jesus, and he begins to point out here, there is Likely a conspiracy afoot. A conspiracy for the religious leaders to entrap Jesus. Notice also, uh, Mark records, they came from Jerusalem. Where, where is Jesus right now in, in the, in the storyline? He just, he just fed the 5,000, right? Where did that happen? It happened in Galilee. Galilee is the northern region of of the uh, what we now know as the state of Israel. Okay, it was north. Where is Jerusalem? Jerusalem is in the south. In fact, Jerusalem is part of uh, what was known as Judea. It was a different region altogether. And Mark points out that they came from Jerusalem. Now why is it important to include that in this text? It's because the Sanhedrin, there's a big word, the Sanhedrin was based in Jerusalem. What in the world is the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin is a um, an organization of leaders within the nation of Israel, and it's, it's primarily uh, made up of, of what is known as the priests or the high priests, the elders, and the scribes. Has, it has aristocratic roots. Uh, in other words, it was it, um, many of those involved in the Sanhedrin were of, of wealthy means. And appointments were probably made from among the priests and leading scribes and uh, lay nobility, if you will. The council of uh, the Sanhedrin had 70 or 71 uh, members in it, and they were divided into three separate categories. The high priests. Usually these men were from Sadducean background. Um, they were very, very powerful within this this group or this body called the Sanhedrin. It's interesting. I, I this this uh, word Sadducee, uh, we hear it throughout the New Testament. We hear the word Pharisee more often, right? But Sadducee is a, is a person who uh, holds to a uh, a belief or a non-belief, if you will in the resurrection, the resurrection. And, and here we see the Sadducees involved in leadership within the, uh, within the Sanhedrin. I, the one, one th- way I like to remember that, I, I know many of you have heard that uh, the, uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Therefore, they are sad, you see right? Yeah. It's a, it's, a nice, it's a nice way to remember that. Now, the high priests uh, also had uh, among them a captain, a captain of the temple who, who supervised that which went on in the temple. Others uh, served as treasurers or they, uh, the handling of the money. And I have to tell you, there was a lot of money that went through the temple. They were involved in caring for that. There was also a president of the Sanhedrin, and he most often was called the high priest. Now, we have several high high priests named within the New Testament. Caiaphas ruled as the high priest uh, during Jesus' day. Ananias was the high priest in Paul's day. Annas is another uh, person who is kind of given... um, emeritus kind of status as a high priest within the New Testament. A second group was the elders. Uh, It was represented uh, the priestly and the financial aristocracy of Judea. Here we're going in, we're digging in. This is the background that we need to get to understand this. Um, They were distinguished laymen. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was uh, counted among them. It's interesting that Joseph was also a Sadducee. Anybody remember who Joseph of Arimathea was? What's he remembered for? Yes, he gave up his own tomb for Jesus' body to be laid there. Um, It's kind of interesting. He's a Sadducee, there you recall. Therefore, he did not believe in the resurrection. What happened in his very own tomb? Yeah. Jesus was raised from the dead. So you might say that he loaned his tomb to Jesus. Yeah. Now the third group was the scribes. And we hear about them quite a bit. Um, They are the the most recent or the newest members of the Sanhedrin. Um, Mostly they are made up of Pharisees. Now, Pharisees are men who have been, uh, they have studied the law. They are lawyers. They have also studied theology. They're theologians. And they've studied philosophy. They're philosophers as well. And so they bring their their legal knowledge to, to their theology and philosophy, and they become um, the center of a judicial sort of gathering when it comes to uh, issues related to uh, making decisions concerning things like we're expressed we're seeing here today things that have to do with the law or the religious law of the day. Uh, the most one of the famous, um, members of the scribes is Gamaliel. You'll remember that the Apostle Paul studied with Gamaliel. He mentions that uh, in the New Testament. Now in Jesus' day, uh, the Sanhedrin was, number one, formally restricted to Jerusalem. Uh, They had influence in the Galilee, even as far as Damascus. Uh, where is Damascus? It's in modern day Syria. Syria. Yeah, way up to the north, much further than, than um, Galilee and off to the east a bit. So their, their influence reached very far, but they, their center, or their headquarters, if you will, was in Jerusalem. And they were concerned primarily about arbitrating matters that had to do with Jewish law. When disagreements arose in every case, the Sanhedrin's judgment was final. It's kind of like today's Supreme court here in the United States. Their judgment was final. They prosecuted charges of blasphemy and participated even in criminal justice issues um, What we are seeing here in this passage today is this confrontation having to do with blasphemy. All this is to say that Jesus had their attention. Jesus had the attention and the scrutiny of these wise guys. And and it's a big deal because they are a religious, they are a political And they are a legal body. Now here in verse 2, take a look at that. We see their ritual. And they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is, unwashed hands. The Sanhedrin assumed this role of policing. Policing the Jewish people concerning ceremonial laws. Now, these laws had their birth in, here's another big word, mosaic law. What is mosaic law? Well, mosaic is not, um, it is not a beautiful uh, picture made out of pieces of clay. No, mosaic refers to Moses. Moses was the one who received the Ten Commandments from God himself, right? And associated with those Ten Commandments, um, he wrote many uh, other associated laws. Now, um, they were, the, the Sanhedrin also held to, uh, they not only held to the Mosaic Law, but they also held to oral tradition. And that oral tradition was given the same status as the law that was received from God himself. It's important to understand that. This, this uh, oral tradition was a series of interpretations interpretations of the meaning of the law. Um, they were given, these were given to Moses or Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai, right? And then their interpretations were passed down in oral form. In other words, uh, passed down from mouth to mouth, just given uh, through the generations, the stories, or the passing on of this information. This oral tradition was the law that Jesus refers to here in chapter 7 of Mark. Um, It's important to understand that. Because it's not the Mosaic law that Jesus is dealing with. It's he is dealing with this oral tradition. All of this is important in view of what happens next here in Mark 7. Verse 3 to 5, Mark clarifies for his readers um, what's going on here. You'll notice in some of your Bibles, there'll be a big parenthesis here. And the reason for that is because Mark is explaining to his non-jewish readers why this is a big deal those who were jewish who understood this tradition had no issue with it they already understood it but gentile believers did not he writes for the pharisees and all the jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands etc going down further they ask him why do your disciples not walk get this according to the tradition of the elders. That's the oral tradition. About 200 years after this, AD 200 or so, this oral tradition was actually written down. And it became known as the Mishnah. Um, that's That's a freebie for those who are historical buffs, all right? Uh, most of us we, that can go in out in one ear and out the other, but the that oral tradition was a big deal. Um, now this oral tradition elaborated on Moses' law that's written down in Leviticus 15, and there in Leviticus 15 we find this um, the instruction of God regarding. Things that are impure and, and how, to, how to purify, if you will. That's what this is being talked about here. Their, their traditions that got associated with this included ceremonial washing. Rinsing their hands in a particular way before they ate, rinsing their hands and, not, and then holding up their arms like this so that they, the water dripped off of their elbows. That was part of their tradition. It was important that they did that. Now, that's exactly what's being talked about here in this passage. It's here in this issue, in these details that the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to entrap Jesus. Jesus was considered a rabbi. What in the world is a rabbi, you ask? Well, in the Jewish culture, there were teachers. Teachers who had disciples or devotees that followed them. And that was the definition of a rabbi, a teacher who had followers, and they're not just any followers. They are people who who it was their intent to not only learn from their teacher, but to mimic their teacher, to be like them in in many ways. Now, it's it's interesting that that um, that that tradition of the, the rabbi, the rabbinic tradition, um, has its, uh, peop- the people who entered into that following of a rabbi did so on their own accord. Jesus, on the other hand, it's very interesting, Jesus chose his disciples, did he not? Yeah. So there's some, there's some interesting detail that's different about Jesus. Now, why in the world are these, these uh, scribes and Pharisees so wrapped up in what the disciples are doing? Well, it's this. The disciples of a rabbi were, uh, uh, were meant to follow the form or the teaching of that rabbi. Therefore, the rabbi became responsible for their actions. So the scribes and Pharisees are coming to Jesus because they consider him to be responsible for how his disciples are acting. I think it's interesting here to take note that Jesus considers obedience, our obedience, seriously. In John 14... Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I have to tell you, when you see those words in scripture, truly, truly, I say to you, our antennas should go way up. There should be uh, our attention should be really focused because what Jesus is saying is I need for you to understand this specifically. This is really important. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me. The works that I do, he will also do. There it is, right? The disciple will do the same thing that the teacher does. And he adds, and greater works than these he will do. Because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And here it is. If you love me you will keep my commandments. Obedience to Jesus is a big deal. He takes it seriously, not only then, but today as well. Back in Mark, verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders or the oral tradition that we've been talking about? But rather, they eat their bread with impure hands. This this is the ritual, the ritual that, quite honestly, will become their ruin. The activity of the disciples is considered to be an indictment of Jesus. Um, Many of you know know, um, Mike Hunt. He's one of our security guys out there, and he is a longtime police officer. And he shared with me at the end of last service, he said, um uh, you need to know that there is a saying within a police department that you can indict a ham sandwich. Yeah, you can accuse you can accuse anyone of anything. Um, when a grand jury is as- assembled, he explained to me, they do not call. Uh, witnesses for the defense—they only call witnesses for the the um, the pr- prosecution, and that's to say to hand down this indictment, and that's entirely what they're after here. The the Pharisees and the scribes are accusing Jesus of mishandling or not observing their traditions. Verse six. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, hypocrites, hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, and in vain they worship me. Teaching, hear this, teaching the doctrines, teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold hold. To the tradition of men. Teaching as doctrines. The precepts of men. Do we see this today? Absolutely we do. We see it today. Uh, Certainly in cults that are associated with the Bible and Christianity. Some will will say absolutely. um, What our prophet or prophetess says. Is held up as entirely equal to the scripture and that's precisely what is happening here in jesus day so what is a doctrine a doc- the word doctrine simply means instruction or teaching it's often understood in the church as the fundamental beliefs now main street orthodox christianity or Christian doctrine is based upon the teachings of the Bible and it's widely accepted among the evangelical church as completely normative. The precepts of men, however, are additions to what is found in the biblical text and they are held up to be again of equal importance to the scripture. Historically, Uh, Have you heard the word Reformation? Anybody? Okay. Those who haven't, we are part of a Christian heritage, a heritage of faith that had its beginning, if you will, in a period known as the Reformation. It started back in 1517. Now, that's a long, long time ago, especially when you think about the fact that we have to restart every two years because of technology, right? Okay, this is a long, long time ago. And in 1517, a man named Martin Luther, who was a, a, a Catholic priest, um, was studying the Bible, and he discovered that many of the teachings of the the church that he was a part of did not match up with the scripture. Namely, that salvation is by grace, not by doing all these things that the church said you had to do. And he listed 95, 95 disagreements with um, the church based upon the Bible and what it taught clearly and he nailed those, what is known now as the 95 Thesis on the door of uh, a church in Germany, Wittenberg Church there in Germany. And he began the Reformation. That is the reforming of Christianity. Now, some church traditions today are quite honestly, unknowingly given the status of doctrine. And here we're going to start to dig in here. Many, many believers hold, quite honestly, innocently certain teachings or precepts of men uh, as doctrine. And they become, quite honestly, the source of division among the church. Many of those traditions have more to do with personal preference and perhaps even. Uh, nostalgia or nostalgic embrace of the past their even their own personal past experience with Christ and they they don't have anything to do with what's actually written in the scripture they have often to do with everything uh, with everything from which translation of the bible do you read how many of you know somebody who says King James and King James only? Yeah. And they hold that up as a doctrine almost. Or maybe even absolutely. As though it is, is unmistakably something that cannot be altered. Or cannot be uh, transgressed. How many, people, um, how many people do you know who... who would come into our church and kind of wonder where in the world they are because, hey, we come to church casual, right? There's some places you don't walk in unless you're dressed to the nines, as in men, a coat and tie. Um, That's a pretty big deal. Some of us um, would even say uh, if you wear a hat in church, Anathema. Believe it or not, we have some people here even who question that. Bless their heart. We have a lady who named Sally that sits over here during first service. Every week she wears a hat. Okay? And, and, and some would say, no, you shouldn't wear a hat in church. It's, it's something that, it, that gets rooted in tradition. And, and it too often becomes divisive. Maybe um, how people prepare or prefer to worship personally. I'm gonna I'm gonna step on some toes here now, and I'm stepping on toes on both sides of this fence. Okay. Some people prefer to worship with hymns, because after all, hymns are, are full of doctrine and their teaching tools. In fact, that's that's in many respects why they were were penned in the first place, because they spoke of rich, important doctrine in the church. And many would say, that's, that's how you need to worship. And there are others in the middle who would say, well, wait a second. You got to include Maranatha music. Do any of you know what that's about? Some of you are our Calvary Chapel people from many years ago, right? And Maranatha music, whether you realize it or not, has become one of those things, one of those traditions that some people hold on to and say it's got to be that. And other people find themselves in this place of saying modern worship music uh, is more illustrative of what goes on in our hearts and and it's more uh it's more fit for us today because that's that's how we think and that's how, how what we prefer. And they, they find themselves in this camp. And the truth is that all three of those are traditions, if you will. Traditions. Some would consider, quite honestly, that there is a best way to do church. In other words, Uh, a best way to organize as a church here. I'm going to step on some toes as well. Okay. Some would say uh, the church needs to be elder led because the elders are, are responsible for the church. They need to have a strong voice. Others would say, uh, no, it needs to be pastor led uh, so that, so that the pastor has the freedom to operate uh, according to, uh, to how the spirit would, would lead him. And others who would say, well, no, wait a second. The church needs to be organized uh, in a congregational matter in, in which the, the people vote. And they, they each get to voice their opinions. And that's how the church ought to be led. The truth is that all of that comes from um, Our patterns in the past, something we're most comfortable with. Yes, there are good reasons for those various points of view, but they very often are um, traditions. It happens. Traditions happen on each end of the spectrum. And it doesn't simply mean that traditions are old. The word doesn't simply mean old. Because we can establish brand new traditions and hold to them just as strongly. They become our preference. And that's how we do church. That's how we worship together. That's how we dress. A.W. Tozer says the landscape of religions is littered with tradition these days. It seems every religion. And every generation has its own list of traditions that must, must be followed. And often, the people who carry them on have no idea why they do so. Do you get that? Too easily, I think, we enshrine our own preferences as doctrinal imperatives. And the result... Too often is division. I have to say, I think Jesus is talking to us in this passage. This division that we're talking about is not just the separation of people from one from the other. It's about separation from God. Look at verse 6 with me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart, their heart is far away from me, but in vain they worship me. Why? Why? Why is their worship in vain? Well, it's because it has more to do about themselves than about God. It's more about their own personal comfort then being stirred up and moved and convicted by the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. Because, verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Wow. Verse 9 he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Here we see the hardening or the petrifying of their hearts. The ritual has become a relic. They are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep Their tradition. Now, the word setting aside here seems to, is simply to take the esteem out of it, to neutralize, to cast off, to despise or frustrate, to reject. Verse 10 For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. Ooh, that's serious, isn't it? But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban. What in the world is Corban? Well, Mark helps us out here with this little bracket. He says, that is to say, that which is given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many such things. What's being said here? This idea of setting aside part of your or actually all of your wealth. That's what God says. It all belongs to me, right? God says all of your life should be an offering unto him. That includes all your money. And therefore, if your parents grow old and are in need of those resources that you have, you say, sorry, it belongs to God. I can't give it to you. I can't help you out here. That's what's going on here. And, and I have to say, many of us, quite honestly, we've been in this place, right? Our parents are, are getting older and they are needing our care even our resources, and if we say hands off because that belongs to God, it's twisted. It's absolutely twisted. We spoke of this this issue two weeks ago in chapter 6 when we were there. Look at verse 3. There we see um, Jesus uh, having come to Nazareth, his own hometown, and this is what the people say. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and his brothers the, of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, Jesus, Jesus didn't wish to offend them, but he often did. He often did when it came to speaking the truth because very often the revelation of, of truth sheds light on sin that is concealed by our own twisted logic. We justify bad behavior with logic that obscures or distorts reality. I can get out of doing what's right, honoring my father and mother by saying that my money belongs to God. It's like tax evasion, right? It's like hiding money in an offshore account. Only it's worse because we're using devotion to God as a tax shelter to avoid caring for our parents. How twisted is that? What would Jesus say to us today? Would he call us experts at setting aside his commandments in order to keep our traditions? I hope not. I I honestly hope not. But this is an honest call for introspection. I have to ask, what rituals, what relics are we holding on to? When it comes to accommodating other people's personal limitations, whether they're physical, emotional, social, maybe intellectual limitations, do I set aside the words of Jesus? Matthew 7, where he says, in everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. When it comes to my preferred way to worship, whether it's loud or quiet, whether it's new music or old, whether it's free expression or devoted decorum, whether it's standing or sitting, am I scratching where it itches? Do we set aside the admonition of Paul in these things where he writes in Philippians, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. When it when it comes to inclusion of others in in my world um, perhaps people of a different race a different culture or economic position or dare I say even theological persuasion do I set aside, the Apostle Paul's declaration in Galatians where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. When it comes to my rugged individualism, that's why we're here in the West, right? When it comes to my desire for self-expression, of my opinion, my, my need to be me, my need to be right, to be justified, to be satisfied, do I set up beside the counsel of the Apostle Peter? where he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. This kind of self-examination is God's intention for us. And now we come to this latter part, and this is the revelation. We've talked about, we've talked about the um, ritual, the relics that come out of those ritual. Now we're talking about the revelation of Jesus. Verse 14, read with me. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's revelation that which proceeds out of the man. That is what defiles the man. And Jesus is asking us to be careful to understand what is in our heart. It's the evidence. It is, or given evidence, it is evidenced by what comes out of us. By what is left in our wake. If you go to the lake and you see a boat speeding across the the water, what is behind the boat? It's what we call a wake, right? If you're speeding really fast, the wake is going to be big. It's going to create big waves. If you're going slow, there is still a wake. It's just smaller. Each of us have a wake following us. In terms of how we live. And it is, if you will, the product of our living. What is left behind us? Is it kindness? Is it that which reflects the fruit of the spirit? Is it unity? What is in our wake? That's what Jesus is asking us to consider. Because the wake is evidence of what really motivates us. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or, or steal. or where, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 23, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles the man. The word defile means uh, to pollute, to make unclean. So we've come full circle here, haven't we? From ritual to relic, And now to Revelation. In verse 5, we read the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Why do you not regard the ritual? Why don't you regard the ritual that has become our relic? Because the revelation is this. That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. You see, purity begins and ends inside. So what has Jesus revealed? Is our heart attached to him? Or is our heart attached to the rituals, the relics, the the traditions that we hold to this morning we're going to share in communion this communion celebrates what we hold as a central doctrine and there is that word the central teaching in our christian faith and that is jesus died a sacrificial death. His death paid for our sin. This morning, I would ask that even as we receive communion, that we would ask the Lord to peer inside and point out anything in our lives that is not fully attached to him and him alone. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these elements that represent your great sacrifice for us. We thank you, Lord, that that sacrifice comes as a result, yes, of your great immeasurable love for us, but also out of the fact that there truly is no other way to be in relationship with you that you would forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we ask even as we, even as we receive these elements today that you would point out to us anything that we are holding on to that is not truly you. We thank you, Lord, that your love for us is so precise that you care to point these things out to us. We celebrate that today. Even as we celebrate this great treasure in these elements, this, your life given in exchange for ours.